Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation, Growing Up Iruni Interview with Samira Mohiedin. And welcome to Growing Up Iruni, an interview with Samira Mohyeddin. I am your host, Leila Shams. So you may know Samira from Instagram. Ever since the protests that erupted in Iran following the death of Masa Amini, she's become a go-to for information about what's going on in Iran. Her Instagram popularity may be more recent, but her hard work predates that by decades. She's an award-winning multi-platform journalist, producer, broadcaster, and on-air camera talent and co-owns and operates a restaurant called Bonu in Toronto's Queen West neighborhood with her two siblings. I've long been an admirer of hers and had so many questions for her in this interview. It really could have been twice as long, but we had time constraints. Hopefully she'll be back soon. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to her and hope you enjoy listening as well. So Samira Mohyeddin, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure. We're right across the border from each other right now, <laughs> so very close by. I first want to say I'm a, I've been a big, big, big fan of your work, so uh, I really appreciate everything that you do, your tone, the things that you bring into the conversation. I want to thank you this past few months, especially. It's been really important to see. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I just want to get it out of the way. It's been I'm wonderful to I'm see. I'm embarrassed, that's why. It's, we- it's weird for me. Because, I mean, a lot of people have been saying this to me, but it's just strange for me to hear because, I don't know, I just, maybe I'm not good with compliments. Well, that and also because you've been doing this consistent, like, good work for so long. And I feel like probably for you, it's very strange all of a sudden. Yes. Yes. Because even if just in terms of sort of, let's just keep it at Instagram. You know, I was a person who had, let's say, I don't know. I think I was like 6,000 followers somewhere around there. And then to all of a sudden get tens of thousands of more followers was very odd, right? Yes. And that for me was an anthropological study in and of itself. Yeah, it was very... Exactly. And, you know, I've been in New York and I just told you before the screen, I've been, you know, spending a lot of time with Ariane Wyatt and hearing about his project, Water Well. One thing that he said that really stood out to me is he said, you know, he's had this for 20 years now and just been doing the slow work. And yeah. all of a sudden, you know, with the George Floyd protest, that blew up. And he was like, where have you all been? And I've seen you say that a lot. Like, where have you all been? Like, <laughs> now now you're with me. So I really appreciate it. And I want to get to that in a bit about what you've been saying for a long time and how you continue to do this work. But first, I want to go back and talk a little bit about your history. So you were born in Iran and you moved to Canada when you were, I believe, two years old, four years old. Okay, can you kind of tell us about that? Sure. I was born in Tehran, and I guess any schooling I did there didn't go past nursery. I went to a a French school there, like a French nursery, and then we moved to Canada on May 4th, 1979. So the day that the government fell, January 16th, 1979, when the Shah left, was the day that the Canadian government called us to come for the interview. Well, my parents went to the Canadian embassy on that same day and they were told they had six months to leave. Uh, that's how, like the visa time. 
the immigration visa, you had six months between that day and they were accepted on that same day. And we landed May 4th, 1979 in Canada and we moved to Quebec. We didn't move to Toronto at first because my aunt had a farm out there, like a big industrial farm, cows, you know, baling hay, tapping maple syrup trees. It was all very Canadiana. So yeah, that's really, that's how we got to Canada. And it wasn't with an intention to leave. It was through your aunt's. The intention was we'll leave for a little bit and then we will come back. There was no, you know, let's look for work now. You know, like my parents like really thought, we'll just be here until things die down and then we're going to go back. We're not immigrating to this country, you know. Okay, so you come with the intention to just be there for a few months and then what happens? Yeah, I mean, after a while, and my grandmother had come too, right? And so after about a year, you know, you have to understand my aunt lived in a town of 500 people. So my parents came from a city of 8 million to now a town of 500. And I remember my mom's thyroid was like out to here. He was not <laughs> doing well. And he said, you know, it doesn't look like things are changing, you know, so... My parents moved to Toronto, which is a sort of bigger city. Not nothing like Tehran, but bigger than where they were. And then, you know, we we signed up for school. We started going to school. And there were probably, I would say, a handful of Iranian families here at that time. And my mom, just because of the person she is, she started to get involved in bringing all of these sort of families together. They formed a, a group called Angel Manafer Dossi, and mm. they started throwing New Year parties, you know, things like that. I started going to Saturday school, Persian school. My sister and I went to Persian school, Saturday school. And so this was sort of their way of keeping, you know, things alive, their culture alive. Was your brother born in Iran as well, or was no, he well, born my in? He was born here in 1981. Oh, okay. Yes. So There's... then what was the. In the house, did y'all speak Persian together or how was that? So in, I'll, I'll backtrack because in Quebec, my parents started going to French school, something that you, you know, the, the Quebec government wants you to do. So there was this weird mix in the house of like, because my sister was going to French school in Iran. She went to Institute Mafiem. And so when she went to French school in Quebec, you know, it was sort of natural for her. It was no problem. So that at first, when we moved to Toronto, there was this weird mishmash in the house of like French, English, Persian. I didn't speak English. So I went to ESL. So did my sister. So we did a couple of years of ESL. So in the house, it was, it was mainly Persian. And then at the same time, my parents were trying to learn English, right? So everybody was going through their own sort of lingual, like mind fuck. <laughs> it's okay. You swear we, on this yes, yeah, we're that out. Not safe for work podcast. <laughs> yeah, but we were we were all going through our own language, you know, journey. What about within you and your siblings? What were you speaking to in one another? Oh, it was Persian. It was okay. Persian. Yeah, until we started really learning English, right? Because you have to understand, we didn't speak English. But my brother went to French again. My my brother was in French immersion school. So it was, again, this weird mishmash. But no one ever had gotten to the point where we were, like, mastering French. My sister spoke it better than anyone else. 
I should probably say for people who don't know, Canada is a bilingual country, French and English. And so my brother was in French school. My parents were trying to learn English. I was in ESL, <laughs> also in ESL. But there was never in the house, my parents never said, you know, like we only speak Persian in the house. That wasn't a rule. Durud, everyone. Leila here with a quick message. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it, I highly encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. In addition to giving you updates about our interviews, we send out a weekly email where we talk about Iranian culture and the Persian language. The emails are short and sweet and just give you a few ideas to ponder and inspire you on your learning journey. You can sign up for that and find out a lot more about us on our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Now, back to the interview. At all. Yeah. Because I know in some families it was like, okay, outside you speak this, inside right. you're going to speak Persian. Well, now- because it sounds like it, it wasn't a clear decision. It wasn't like we're staying here and so we have to keep our Persian roots. It wasn't like it, nobody knew what was going on, right? Everyone was just trying to survive and like get through. It took about two years until we noticed, oh, my parents are selling things. You know, then wow. things started to change, you know? Right, and, and right. Grandmother died, which was really brutal because at that point they had already closed the borders. The Iran-Iraq war started, so it wow. wasn't so easy to come and go anymore, you know? Right, right. Shut the airports. So then as the years went on, you said you had the Noruz, like you started to build this community there, and you learned to read and write. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Persian school on Saturdays were really a place to eat salad olivier and like, you know, have fun with my cousins. You know, it had gotten to the point where I kept, I, I kept failing, you know, because I was such a, a class rabble rouser. And during the week, you know, you were going to English, you were learning English and you were in these English schools. And then on Saturdays, the teachers, the Persian teachers were very different. You know, they were very strict and, you know, oh. we were kind of like, piss off. Like, we're not, <laughs> not going to listen to this stuff. So I had like four male cousins. We were all in the same classes and we just kept failing classes. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, I was 12 years old and everyone else in the class was like six years old. I was still doing, at 12 years old, I was still doing Baba Abdad, Maman, you know. So at one point, I finally got kicked out of Persian school. And I'll never forget the moment I was 12 and I had a bob haircut. I don't know if you know, but it's like your hair is like this. And it was like covering half of my eye. And I was in class one day and the teacher said to me, and I'll say this in Persian. She said, um, something like that. And I said, so I don't like your hair. Pull it aside. Yeah. She said, I don't like the way your hair is. And I said to her, uh, so I said, go fix your own hair and then come and talk to me. And that was just <laughs> like the last straw for her. She was like, get out. And I was like, fine. And I really, I, I mean, I, looking back on it, right, I regret all of my behavior in Persian school because I'm not at the point now where I am, it's on par with English, right? I can read and write and I can speak the language. But 
if you ask me to say a word like eloquent, I can't say that in Persian. Or if you ask say a word like, I don't know, ubiquitous, I can't say that in Persian, right? So there are words that I can't use and I'm not as proficient. So I regret that. But then I ended up taking it in university. Okay. Well, what was your relationship with being Iranian growing up? I mean, there's a lot of differences with Canada and the U.S., so I'm not exactly sure. But was it embarrassing? Was it something you were proud of? Was it something? How was it in school? It had like these ups and downs, right? And it was always tied to whatever the government was doing. That was how we were treated, right? So one of the biggest things, and I've written about this, was when the hostage crisis happened. So when the students of the imam's line, so these Islamic revolutionary students took 52 Americans hostage on November 4th, 1979. That was something that I'll never forget because my cousins, my sister and I were coming back from school. And again, keep in mind at this point, I'm five years old. My sister is nine. My cousins were like 10 and 11. We were actually taken hostage and we were tied up to the back of our apartment building to the trees there. These boys tied oh. up said, you took them hostage, so we're going to take you hostage. Wow. And yeah, it was really, I, w- I remember crying and screaming and saying, oh. we didn't do anything. But again, we didn't speak English. So my sister was yelling at them in French saying, it wasn't us, you know, and it was so jarring. I always go back to this moment of thinking, we really make the citizens of a country pay for the crimes of their government. You know, here we were 10,000 kilometers away, right? Being treated like utter garbage because these assholes back in Iran did that. You know, so it's not just that you can remove yourself from a country. People don't, it doesn't work that way, you know? And then again, in 2001, when 9-11 happened, even though Iran and Iranians had nothing to do with it, right? The moment I tried to enter the U.S., my retina was scanned. I had my fingerprints taken. Like, that wasn't the norm before, right? So here we were again paying for what someone else did when it had nothing, it literally had nothing to do with us. I didn't realize it was like that in Canada, too. I could understand in the U.S. because yeah. the hostage crisis didn't even have to do with Canada. No, it didn't. But it was still, it was all over the papers and it just, it, it really left a mark on me. Of course. Yeah. That's the mark of thinking, wow, it doesn't matter how I see myself or what I do. The government and its actions do have an influence on how people see me. You know, so it, it's not just something that you immigrate and you're done with it. That's, it doesn't work that way. Right. So that happened at five. And then how was it as you were growing up? Was it still that feeling of fear? Like in high school, were you? Oh, no, not at all. No, high school, no, not at all. There was no no friction, no anything like that. Uh, people knew I was Iranian. I didn't hide okay. it. Okay. And no. it was very like diverse in Canada, right? I mean, I remember, I mean, they call Toronto Tehran to now. But there's so many Iranians. And I feel like Iranians are very well respected there. They, they are. I mean, it, it, you know, Again, it has these sort of ebbs and flows, highs and lows, because in 1989, for instance, when the Iran-Iraq war ended, there was this huge influx of Iranians into Toronto. 
So the immigration waves in, into the city was like 1979, 1989, 2000, 2009, and then, you know, whatever we are now. But in 1989, when the war ended, there was this huge influx of Iranians into the high school. And I remember the guidance counselor saying, okay, you know, we have all these Iranians coming. Can you help us sort of help them navigate, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, sure, no problem. And I had such a difficult time sort of meeting them, even though we're both Iranian, it was such a culture clash because they were coming from a place that I hadn't been to in a decade and had only been to when I was four and here I was now at you know 15 or whatever and I wasn't very helpful to them you know in turn because they were also looking at me like are you Iranian like what before <laughs> we would start talking I would hear them say in Persian when I was would walk down the halls in ironia, in ironia. <laughs> they were sort of like really amazed that I was Iranian like either I didn't look Iranian to them or didn't be act Iranian I don't know I would hear all this stuff in my ears. And then something happened that, I mean, I, I'm assuming this show is a little bit PG, but they started like, there were a lot of Iranians who were troublemakers who had just arrived. And like, like they would bring knives to school. There was a lot of gangs had come together to form. And I guess it was really just trying to protect themselves or have some sort of unity. I don't know. But they were a lot of, troublemakers who had just arrived and they had spray painted on the wall of the high school this big I'm talking big like 20 feet letters you know and I remember coming home from school and I said to my mom what does this word mean because I had never I could read remember I could read but my comprehension of what I was reading wasn't always you know it's kind of like Arabic you can read it but you don't know what you're reading. So I came home and I remember saying to my mom, you know, what does this word mean? She was like, oh my God, who said that? Where did you see that? And I was like, oh, it was spray painted on the wall of the high school. She was like, oh, these newcomers, oh, they're, they're, you know, they're embarrassing. They're, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the word, and you can bleep this out, but it was kir, which means dick in, in Persian, but a very rude way of saying it. Right? So, I, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, why are they spray painting this on the side of the school? But it was, I guess, like, I don't know, they liked it. It was some form of graffiti. But, like, the, again, this was my introduction to this new group of Iranians who had come, right? They weren't the people that had come in 1979. Like, right. clear differences between us. So it was sort of hard to navigate these new relationships that you were trying to forge. And try to help these people because at the same time, my mom was going to these shelters because they were mostly refugees and she was bringing home refugees to live with us. Mm. Like literally live with us. All of a sudden there was a family of four, like living with us in the basement. We didn't have a very big home. It was just a townhouse. So, and this would happen every couple of years. My mom would help them get on their feet she would sign, like co-sign rent places for them to go and live. Wow. And then every couple of years, a new family would come, you know. And it was funny because you'd walk down the street in what was sort of becoming Tehranto. And people would like stop my mom and say, look, it's my daughter. She's now, in, you know, in 
five, whatever, elementary school, blah, blah, blah. Thank you so much. And, you know, as a kid, I'm like, what's going on? Here? I didn't know. Like, exactly. I knew people were coming to live with us and, like, she was helping them. But the impact that she was having on the community at that time. Right. I couldn't really fathom it until I got older. How did you how did you start to develop your like political understanding of what was happening in Iran? Like when did you start to because you have a very strong voice in that regard now? You know, it, we knew from a very young age why we immigrated. Like my parents didn't shield that from us. Right. And if you were a kid like five or my sister was nine, I mean, you saw the upheaval like my sister remembers going to the airport and seeing somebody hanging from a tree Ooh. on our way to Mehrabad, right? And there was, like, as you got to the airport, you knew that there was upheaval. People would kick our luggage and say, get out. Like, there was a lot of that going on. So we were very aware, and my parents were very political people. Not that they belonged to political parties, but they were very instilled a sort of understanding of social justice and equality in us from a very, very young age. Like these were conversations that we were having around the dinner table. They weren't asking us about, you know, how was your homework? Like I would watch my parents glued to the news every night, right? So when we, for instance, got tied up in the back of the apartment, my, my mom sat us down and told us why, right? Wow. And, and we would see on the news, like she was saying, this is what they've done, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I grew up with that. My mom sort of told me about Mahnaz Afghami, the first minister of women's affairs in Iran, put on a death list at a young age. I had that photo in my room since I was nine or 10 years old. So th these were people and figures and things that I grew up with. So as I got older and like decided to sort of make this my area of study, these were people and things that I already knew about, but then sort of, you know, went down a rabbit hole. And then went on to do a master's in blah, blah, blah. So it, it sort of felt very... Wait, a master's in what? <laughs> what was the... Oh, uh, I have a master's in modern Middle Eastern history and gender. Okay, so, right, right. So that just made a lot of sense. Like this was the trajectory that I was going down, you know? And then what was your uh, relationship? How many times have you visited Iran and how old were you during those trips? Were you with your parents or what was your... No, my mom has never been back. Wow, okay. She has no desire to go back, not under this government. The first time I went back, so we left in 1979. The first time I went back was in 1999. I landed in Tehran on my birthday, August 8th. And it was a month after Hijdaitir. So the big student protest that happened in 1999, where there was a huge government crackdown. And I landed in Tehran a month after. And this was the same time that it was the last solar eclipse of the millennium. Ooh. So the year 2000 was just coming up, right? And everybody was going, all the scientists around the world were going to Tehran to see this solar eclipse because Iran was one of the best places in the world to watch it. Where you wow, could okay. see it really, really well. And so I remember going to Esfahan on that day. It was August 11th, 1999. And... What is it called? Nasha Jahan? Like that square? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes. I forget what it's called now. Uh, Nasha Jahan. That sounds yeah. right. And there were hundreds of people in the square and they were all wearing, they were all wearing those 3D glasses. Uh huh. You know, that you pass out because they tell you not to look at a solar eclipse, right? It could right. ruin your eyesight. 
And I remember everybody was in the square, the lights, like it just got dark, right? All of a sudden, because of the solar eclipse, everybody was standing around with these glasses, like trying to look up. And yeah, that was my sort of introduction. And I went, I remember being on the plane and it was a KLM flight. And they said, you are now in Iranian airspace. And everybody had to cover their hair. Right. Nobody, nobody, I think there was maybe two or three people on that plane who had covered up. But, and I was like, whoa, no, now we have to cover. Even though we were on this flight, because we were in Iranian airspace, we all covered. And I got off the plane and I started filming like right on the tarmac. And the first thing you see was this gun, like this AK, not uh, like M16, just being like, it was another and he like just hit the corner of my VHS. You know, back then we had those high eight cameras. Remember those big things? Yeah. Oh yeah. So that was my first film. Was boom. It just ended. The city. So I was like, okay, like we're not in Kansas anymore. You know. And I just remember the smell of yeah. I was gonna ask hitting my nose. Yeah. And the hot air. Uh, it was it was unbearable. The heat. Yeah. And did you have family there? Like who, who was there yeah, at the so airport? I had, my grandmother was there at the time. Okay. Uh, she had gone to visit. And then I had like second cousins, third cousins. I had one uncle there still in Esfahan and okay. that's it. So I remember that he had to bring, uh, like there was no Imam Khomeini airport at this point. It was just all international flights would go in and out of Mehrabah. And he had Sanad Khunado, he had to bring it because I did not go to Iran with a passport. I went with wow. called a Barg Ubur, which in French is called a Pazelise. So it's a, basically a travel document. Okay. So the embassy gave me a travel document in Canada to then go to Iran and get a passport while I was there. So I was there for close to two months. And why did you go? It was actually, I went to film, to do some filming. It was for a film I was working on for the creative development of a film called Passing. We were writing a film about women who would dress up as men or pass in order to be able to do things like swim or, you know, run in the streets or like do just basic, basic things. Right. And so we were going to do some filming and to also talk to a female artist who were working there to ask them what it was like as a female artist living in Iran. One of the people that we interviewed, I'm not sure if you know Patty Sawbudi, he's like mm -hmm. a really famous theater director there. And then another gentleman that we interviewed was a really famous film director who passed away. He made a film about this woman who set herself on fire. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like a narrative film. God, I can't remember his name. It starts with a K. We'll look it up. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> I have to find his name. But yeah, so yeah, that was one of the other people that we went to um, talk to. And then another woman that we spoke to was this Hungarian artist, like Majorestani, who had lived in Iran since like even before the revolution. She had moved there and stayed there. She was married to that man, the Iranian film director. She was a prolific artist, like a painter. Again, I forget her name. But that was the reason for going. Right. And then also I had never been right. I had, and I, my memories were so murky. I mean, I was only four when I left, but I can tell you like to summarize the trip, 
it was very traumatic for me. It was not, uh, I did not have a good time at all. I lost 12 pounds while I was there and would cry at least once a day, at least once a day. It was a very sad. Place. Why? What was what was going on? What was what was the vibe there? You were in Esfahan. What f- first? Give me a little context. I was in Esfahan only. Okay. Probably. You know, Tehran is. And what was the political contest? Who was the president at the time? It was Khatami. It was Khatami. Okay, well, so Khatami then where was-, was the head job at the time? Was it here? Was it here? Uh, it was sort of like this was the time where like people would wear hijabs. They had like big bouffants, so it was kind of like yes. Here, okay. You know. But I just found Tehran a very tragic, tragically sad place. And it was all these reminders. So remember, I had to get my passport while I was there. So I was going through a lot of bureaucracy, things that normally someone who's visiting wouldn't have to endure, right? So one of the places that I had to go to on a daily basis for a week was the passport office. And so... As you know, there is a women's section and the men's section. And so the women's section was on top. The men's section was on the bottom. And it was very hot. It was August. It was about normally 38 to 40 degrees every day. And when you entered the women's section of the passport office, there was, like every other women's section, a piece of cloth put up in front of the door. So I'm not sure if you know this, but in the Quran, this is why this happens in Iran. But in the Quran, separating Muhammad's wives from everyone else who would come to visit the home. And so that's why there is a cloth put up at women's. I did not know this. Okay. Yeah. So you would pass through this cloth and there, like the women. The hijabi, very hijabi sort of. Literally sisters. Yeah. One of the sisters sisters of whatever Zainab were there. And on a desk in front of her was pambe, so cotton balls, acetone, which is acetone. <gasps> and then, yeah, so there was that. And so when you entered, they would pat you down, right? And then they would say, like take off your lipstick. So they would give you a cotton ball, you'd take your lipstick off, blah, blah. All of this stuff, you know, it had gotten to the point where After the fourth day, I said to her, look, you have cotton balls and acetone and like nail polish remover and all this stuff here, but you don't have a single goddamn piece of paper telling me what I actually need to get the passport. Like priorities of places were so skewed. I just couldn't handle it, you know? So I would make my way upstairs after being told, actually one day I was told, go home, you're not wearing socks. So I trek back to the apartment, you know, to get dogs. So all of this was extremely frustrating. So I get upstairs and, you know, they're like, you need your passport photo. So I was like, okay. And they're like, you have to go to this place to get them. And then you have to go to the bank to get it stamped. Then you have to go to the Kalantari, which is like the sheriff's office and get the stamp. So it's, this doesn't all just happen in one day. Right? No. I go to get my photo taken. I take my photo. I take it back to the passport office and they say, oh, no, no, no. Your ears are showing. So, can't show your ears because look how attractive my ears are. <laughs> never know right. who that's going to arouse. So, back to the, pa- the photo 
guy and I say, my ears are showing, you know, so he takes a photo where it's just like literally this. Yeah. <laughs> I go back to them. I give them the photo. They're like, great. This passes muster. Then I go to the office of the Calantari who needs to see ID from me, right? I can't just take him that photo. So what's my ID? It's the Shaw and Shaw passport. That's all I have. <laughs> like from when you were four. Exactly. With a photo of me, my mom, and my sister. So that's what I take. So of course he's like, you know, the devil has come to see him. And he looks at me and he says, Like, why have you even come here? Right? And I said, which means I've come to see the eclipse, right? And he says, which means people in this country don't even have money to buy eggs, but you've come to see the eclipse. So basically he's like shaming me, right? Like trying to take some. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not the one stealing the people's money. Wow. You know, I was a little unhinged. There was, I was not in any way holding back myself uh, in Iran. You know, when, when these types of people would talk to me, I would chirp right back at them. And I have to tell you, they really don't expect it and they don't know how to treat you. I have to say, I was either very lucky and very stupid. And I think they thought I was just a little crazy. So they were like, well, because <laughs> just go, I, just go. I at one point had gotten so annoyed in the passport office because one day the air conditioners were not working in the women's section. So I took off my veil. Remember, it's the women's section. So I was like, there's no men here. Why do I have to wear this? Like, so I took it off and I put it around my neck. And this woman came up to me and I'll never forget this. You will not believe this, Leila, but this, you're standing in line and all you hear in your ear, you don't see a person. You just hear in your ear, and I fucking like, I turned around and it was one of these women, right? Who has the chador on and she's got half of it in her mouth. And I looked at her and I said, She didn't say anything to me. She just turned around, right? And wow, yeah. I stood on top of the chair in the passport office and I said, Reading to Mamlekat, and wow. like some ladies started cheering, others were. Well, like, I have to translate that. So you said you basically <laughs> you shit on this country, but <laughs> but all of our hijab looks good. Is yeah. is right? But we're all properly veiled. We're right? all properly veiled. You shit yeah. On the country, you shit into the country. Actually, I think the translation would be the country's gone to shit, but yes, we're all properly veiled. And so some women started clapping, others whatever, and I knew okay. My day at the passport office ends now. So <laughs> then I went off. Like this, this ordeal at the passport office took more than three weeks of coming and going, coming and going. And you're 20 at this point, right? You're 20 and you're doing this. And in Iran, lineups don't get long. They get wide. Yeah. Like people just cannot figure out. And, you know, I'm coming from a place like Canada where everybody's very prim and proper, you do not butt in front of people. You do not cut in a line. Your wide lines don't get longer. You know, people line up. You take, you take a ticket. 
you know, there, none of this was happening in Iran. Maybe it is now, but none of that was happening in 19. Right. There's not systems. It's all just bureauc- bureaucratic, like mess. It's a mess. It's an absolute yeah. mess. And so, and again, I wasn't used to, you know, the, the Iran that my parents were described was not the Iran that I was met with when I got to Tehran in 1999. So, you know, seeing, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds working on the streets was not something that I was used to. So I cried, you know, I found it extremely disturbing. I was constantly just whatever money was in my pocket was gone after an hour. Right. So you didn't have this feeling of like homecoming, like you said, that smell for me, I feel like when I like get that smell of fumes I'm like home <laughs> and sometimes I'll smell it in like a city I'm I feel this but you didn't have that feeling of like home no 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 I found it to be a very dark uh dangerous because everything that I encountered like another story was I was in a restaurant with my friends with my cousins laughing out loud the waiter comes over and says you can't laugh out loud wow and why? Why did the waiter say that? Because the gentleman next to him, who was one of those wearing those big arir rings, disgusting olive-colored suit, Rishu, who had taken what looked like his three secretaries out to lunch, told him to come over and say, tell her she's not allowed to laugh. Wow. So these things were not normal for me. Okay? It was like, these markers of fascism were constantly hitting me in the face. Like, for instance, like my friend was like, my friend and cousin were like, let's go raftim cheese. Um, Ramsar. Upstate in Shomal in the, on the coast. Yeah. I can't swim. I'm not going in the water fully clothed. Like these types <laughs> of absurdities, I can't handle. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, I'm not going in this water. And like, they're like, look how right. pretty. I'm like, great. I want to swim, yeah. you know? And, <laughs> and the other thing was the dressing. Like, when I first saw my family, they were like, which right. Why are you dressed like a, well, like, like a villager, but like, like a villager, a, but also not sophisticated. Yeah, because my hijab, I was covered. <laughs> you know, my manto was where it was supposed to be. Yeah. Know? And I remember saying to them, look, you want to make this thing pretty? I get it. To me, it's not pretty. It's an imposition. And so I'm going to fucking double down on that imposition. I'm not going to make, you know, wear a Hermes scarf. Okay. I'm going to wear a rag on my head. Right. So, and I get it. They need to live with that. Right. They were trying to do whatever they can to make it pretty, to make it bearable. I wasn't doing that. I was doing the opposite. That's so interesting. Okay, so I think that that's a a big difference. Like, so is this this trip is like what radicalized you? Do you think, or were you already? I would say that this trip is what made me jarringly aware of what women deal with on a daily basis in Iran. I had read about it. I had seen it in newspapers, you know, but you don't really get it until a man that you don't even know comes up to you and says which is what happened to me in Esfahan. Right, which was, is uh, cons- or fix your hijab, like make yeah. yourself presentable. Exactly. Which at the time my hair was not even an inch long when I went there. I had basically buzzed my head and gone there. But 
again, it was so, remember, it's Moharram too, right? So this guy at Bahan felt really like emboldened. He like came up to me and said it's one. And I, again, I tell you this, I'm going to swear, you can bleep it out. But I turned no, 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 around and said to him, go fuck yourself, motherfucker. Like, and he said in perfect English, because my cousin basically had a heart attack when I said that to him. <laughs> like, I looked at her and she was like, she said, <laughs> which basically means she doesn't know she's Western yeah. and she just arrived. He turned around in perfect English. This is a man who's in his 50s and said, cover your hair. Right? <laughs> and again, like, I just thought, oh, I can't, I couldn't handle it. I wrote a letter to my mom and dad when I was in Iran. It was a three-page letter, and I thanked them profusely for leaving. Wow. You know, because before that, I had these sort of exotic imaginations of like, I wish we didn't leave. What if we didn't go? You know, I feel robbed of language. I feel robbed of culture. I feel, you know, robbed of all these things. Like people come and would come and go and they'd be like, oh, it's so lovely there. It's so great. The food, the blah, blah, blah. And then I went there and I was like, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care. None of this is important to me. Not the food, not the language. I can, I can fix all that. You know, what I can't fix is freedom. And that to me was the most important thing. I could not handle Maybe because I wasn't brought up in that, right? But I can't handle it. But I think I think there is a difference with like what you, how you felt with like a lot of us. Because I'll I'll say for myself, for example, I so wanted to be to belong to this culture, and so I felt I felt robbed also. And I think for me, I also went by myself in my twenties, and it was really hard to handle. But again, I saw oh, okay, we just dissociate. We say this is not Iran. Like Islamic Republic is not Iran. So I'm just dissociating. And so when I saw your clip for, that you post often with you and the two guys, and they're like, things are better now. Things are fine. Because in 1999, they were better than they were 10 years before. You know, Khatami was there. He was like making everyone feel like things could get better. And they were pushing this line of evolution, not revolution. We're standing up to the West. Da, da, da. And I feel like for me, as someone who so badly wanted to be a part of this culture, I just thought, okay, I, I don't understand. We just need to live these two lives and it's fine. It is fine. But you went and you said, hey, emperor has no clothes. This is not fine. <laughs> like, look at what we're... The other thing, Layla, is that I noticed, you know, the stark class differences. It was really jarring. And like, I had seen people that my mom hadn't seen in 20 years, right? So I was going around with some of her friends and my own family who they had no outside life. Like I sat my cousin down and I said, you realize that you don't even have an outside life, right? Like you go from your home into an ajan, which is a, a taxi for hire. And then from there, you go to another party. Like I was walking in Shadaday. That was more interesting to me than being up in Tajrish and Zafirah and Fereshteh and Elahiyeh and all these places where, you know, these brats were running around, like there was nothing going on, which is exactly what you see now in Iran, right? It's that 2%, that 3% that are keeping this government in power. 
you know, the only place that really didn't come out to protest during this woman life freedom movement was Northern Tehran. Ah. Right. Because their lives are fine. You have money. You can do whatever you want. Right. And as long as you keep your mouth shut, the government doesn't come and bother you. But try going downtown. Try going to the middle of the city. Right. So my my family could not believe that I was walking around downtown. You know, they were like, why are you down there? And I said, because that's your city. Your city is not just up here. Like, you don't know. They were, they had no outdoor life, like at all. And, you know, I was going to parties where I was like, what is happening here? Like, you people are alcoholic drug Like, the amount of partying that people do to just sort of deaden themselves from the, from the reality of where they're living. I don't begrudge them that. I get it. I don't have to live there. so. You do whatever you need to do to survive. But, you know, don't tell me when you come back that it's heaven because you actually don't do anything there. You have no dealings with the government. You don't go through the bureaucracy. You don't teach there. You don't work there. Like, you know, it's just at some point after I got back, I was like, that's it. I I don't want to hear your shit anymore. Like, you don't know what it's like. You know, because you stay up in your little bubble in northern Tehran. Uh, and, and I didn't really think to myself, something has to give here. This can't be going on. And yeah, you're right. I guess that is the point where I was like, I think you used the term radicalized. Yeah, maybe that was the point that I was radicalized because I, it became very, I became starkly aware of what people were dealing with on a daily basis. People who actually function. In society, you know, and having to deal with the bureaucracy by yourself at twenty, I think, probably had a large part to do with that as well as all no, these experiences. That it you're wasn't something about. I could say, "Dad, can you go get me my passport?" You know, which I'm sure a lot of people do, right? They, you just, like, you know, I had to do it on my own. Or, like, for instance, in Esfahan, I wanted to rent a hotel room. Guess what? I wasn't allowed because you're wow, not. Yeah. A hotel room as a single woman. Why? Because you're either a whore or a virgin. You pick one. Like the guy kept saying to me, <laughs> he kept saying, "Do you have a note from your dad?" And I was said, "For what?" Like I'm, I'm I want to rent a hotel room. And he said, "Are you a student? You need permission." And I said, "From who?" Like, you know, these were things that I just couldn't get over because that's not how I was brought up. That's not the system I was brought up. Right. So it wasn't normal, <laughs> just not normal, you know, and I use that with a capital N, normal. Right. You know? So what is it about? So you've had these views for a long time. And I feel like, like I said, a lot of people have been, you know, going with this like evolution, it's getting better and like realizing finally it's not getting better. What do you think it was about this Masa Amini moment that happened that kind of got everyone on board with your point of view? What was the difference between everything that had happened before? You know, a friend of mine spoke to her cousin in Iran, and this, this sort of really resonated with me, is that what we see with the demographics of people who are participating in this revolution in Iran, these aren't just <clears throat> very progressive, secular families. 
you have a lot of these kids who have died and have been killed coming from very religious families whose mothers and fathers are actually very religious, whose mothers are wearing chadors. So it's a real mix of people. And I think what finally sort of broke the, the camel's back, camel's back, the straw that broke the camel's back was that it is in that chant of right? We are all potential masas. So if I was in Iran and when I turned around and I said to that guy, you know, go F yourself, you know, when he told me to cover my hair, I was lucky. I was lucky he didn't turn around and go and tell someone, right? I was lucky my cousin was with me and said, she's nuts. She's from the West, you know, <laughs> um, because who knows what would have happened to me. And I think a lot of parents realize that, right? Even the dad who thinks, nah, hijab is security for my daughter. It protects her against men, you know, blah, blah, blah not realizing he himself is a man. So what does that say about him? Right. I think a lot of dads realize, oh, it doesn't protect her. Because let's face it, Massa was covered up. Massa was properly veiled. Right. right. But that didn't help her still. So I think a lot of people came to realize that. And this whole facade of reform came crumbling down. I mean, not to say that people still don't believe in reform. But I think that whoever did at this point is really just not under that illusion anymore. You know, I think that that started to dissipate around 2009 also. Yes. Yeah. In 2019, 2023. It does seem like it's just getting shorter and shorter, these timelines. And it's also generational. It's also generational. Sorry to interrupt you. Like this generation, Gen Z, is not burdened with the ideas of, anti-colonialism, anti-West, all of that stuff that sort of fueled and built what we know as the, as the monster of the Islamic Republic. They're not burdened with all of that, you know, stuff, isms. Right. You know? Right. Well, shoot, we've reached our one o'clock time. That went by really fast. I can go for another 15. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Because I had so many questions about, I also want to hear about your project about Bonu, if you can tell a little bit about that, about your restaurant, what you're doing with that right now. Are you, you're mostly at the CBC or are you involved in that as well? I work at the CBC full-time as a producer and a host and I get to the restaurant as much as I can. So if they need help on the weekends, follow up. But it's mainly my brother and sister who hold up the fort there. Okay. So I think that especially in the last few months, like I've seen really the people who are involved with food have also been very involved with the revolution and talking about what's going on in Iran. Like, what do you think it is about food in particular? Like, why is that the channel through which you decided to, to do activism? What is it about food? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not necessarily food-based as it was to have some sort of cultural community hub. I love Iranian food. I think it's one of the best cuisines in the world. And I, all throughout graduate school, worked in other people's restaurants. And they were mostly French restaurants. And I, you know, I would go to Iranian restaurants, I would eat, and it was always a situation where I would eat and want to run. It was never a place I wanted to hang out. The atmosphere was not nice. The music was horrible. And, you know, the food was okay, but it was not a place where I felt like I want to hang around, have a cocktail, invite, you know, my non-Iranian friends. Like, And so we wanted to open a restaurant that sort of everyone would come to, not just Iranian. Right. And we did it in an area 
where there are no other Iranian restaurants. There, there were no Iranians even at that time, right? So again, it was sort of like going back to when my parents came here in 1979 and trying to forge a community. We did that with the restaurant down in downtown Toronto. And people were telling us, don't open in this area. You know, you're not going to have customers, blah, blah, blah. But we wanted to go where we were told not to go. And that comes in with the whole, you know, being told to go where you're not supposed to, doing things you're told not to. So we created a place where, you know, Iranians of all stripes would feel comfortable, particularly the queer community. Like my brother and I are part of the LGBT community. And like, we fly the rainbow flag there, right? Because we want Iranians who are not queer and have a problem with that, that sort of acts as a barrier for us right away, sort of, you know, sieve out the riffraff. If you're not comfortable here, we don't even want you here. And then Iranians who are queer to feel comfortable to bring their lovers, their boyfriends, their husbands, their wives, and their families, right? And so after, I mean, this April was 18 years, we're sort of very, very proud of the place that we've built, you know? And have seen couples come together, get married, then have the parents come on board and feel comfortable because they see other Iranians who are queer building something, right? Because at the end of the day, parents love their kids. We just have this culture of like, oh, Bahriyachim again. And you know, when Bahriya are okay with it, the parents are usually okay with it. It's what will others say, Bahriyachim again. Exactly, yeah. And I noticed that you call it Iranian food and a lot of Iranian restaurants call it Persian food. And even during COVID, you were uh, kind of suggested to by the landlord to change that. So what what brought you to that decision? Why is it Iranian food? That was a decision we made very early on. And it really came back to, in a lot of ways, that hostage taking for my sister and I, because we experienced that. And we noticed that, you know, since coming to Canada, a lot of Iranians shied away from calling themselves Iranian. They said, well, I'm Persian, you know, and it was a way of distancing yourself from the actions of the government, right? And we thought, you know what, we're going to take this back from the Islamic Republic. We're going to take Iran back in our own way, and we're going to call it Iranian restaurant. And so we made sure to have that word in the restaurant title. And yes, Persian is a food, Persian is a culture, Persian, Persian is a language, but we wanted Iranian in the title of our restaurant for that reason. I do think for me, that's been a big change in the past few months is I, I think a lot of us wanted to not say negative things about Iran or because we were thinking that was putting down the culture, but I think a big change has been realizing that it's Islamic Republic and Iran. Now saying it, it sounds so obvious, but it took until now for me to have that kind of language. It's interesting you say that because this idea of Aberu, which how would you, yeah. how would you translate? Yeah, like pride or your, yeah, pride or your dignity or... faith. It's like not airing dirty laundry. Exactly. I never had that problem. Right. See, um, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I never gave into this nefarious form of nationalism when it came to where I was from. So you mentioned that conversation that I had with those two gentlemen on that show. And they were doing such their best, you know, to try and give Iran in a good light. At some point, I, I was going to say, you know, do, the, do you two work for the tourism board of the Islamic Republic? 
But I never had that knee-jerk reaction. When someone who was non-Iranian would say to me, you know, Iran is a fascist government, fascist regime, I would say, yes, absolutely they are. And they did this, this, and this. I wouldn't say, well, it's not that bad. You know, it's a funny democracy. We have elections there, you know. We, we have things. And my favorite other statistic was, you know, 56% of women go to university in Iran. And it's like, okay, but the employment is 8%. Like, people don't take it to its logical conclusion, right? They were so hell-bent on not airing our dirty laundry to non-Iranians. Because I'm sorry, at this point, what do you have pride in? Right. And I'm asking that of Iranians. What are you so proud of right now? No, you shouldn't have any pride in what's going on. You know, you should hold your head down, okay, and say, we're going to fix this. Right. This is on I up. mean, I think, I think for me, I'll answer that because I, I was like that. You know, I had this knee-jerk reaction to be like, ah, it's not that bad. You know, there, the women, there's women authors. There's women da-da-da. I think for me, first of all, there was a lot of propaganda that was pushing us to be that way, right? I mean, there was just a lot of language around it. And also, I think, I don't know, I, that, that, yeah, it's hard to answer. But then I will ask you now, like, can we reconcile, like, w- for people like us, like, what now? What do we do to get past that? The dam is broken. We've realized our mistakes. Is there any reconciling it? Like, have you talked to those two guys? One of them went to jail for a really long time. Yeah, you he know? went to jail. One of them. The, I mean, they were also the victims. Yeah, he bit the hand that fed him. That's why he went to jail. And I won't name him because he's a very he could be a very litigious person. So we'll just leave his okay. name out of this. Another one went on to work for the BBC. And, you know, you can take that however you like. But he, here's a, here's here's what I was thinking. Sorry, to go back to that. Very I think person that gentleman that went on to work for the bbc i don't think the other the other one i know for a fact is still a son of a bitch Uh, (laughs) and i've called him that to his face and so that's i'm not doing that behind his back but the other person who was who i was on that panel with i think from what i've seen is a very changed person now so i think we can reconcile it i think people can reconcile it by starting with themselves okay how are you talking about what's going on in Iran right now at this moment? That is the biggest thing. I mean, there are people still who say the majority of people believe in hijab. Well, what does that mean? The, just because a lot of people believe in something doesn't make it right. The majority of Germans were on board with what Hitler was doing. Remember, the Nuremberg laws were voted in. Right. So just because the majority believes in something doesn't mean it's right. And what is a democracy? A democracy is uh, protecting the minority from the majority. But that's not what you see. Right. So we have to get out of this mentality of. So what? A government's role and responsibility is to be ahead of its people. To tell its people where we're going as a nation, what we're doing, to be ahead. Not, what do you guys think? Oh, you guys all think we should hang people? Great, let's do it. <laughs> if I wanted to be right. led by the masses, right? that's dangerous. I don't want you to be my leader. As much as I love you, Layla, I need a bit more from you. You know, I want right. my leaders to be a bit more educated than I am. 
You know, Absolutely. we have a president Absolutely. right now in Iran who's gone to grade six level of education. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have a million other things I could talk to you about, but I think for now, can you tell us where people can find you, where, what you're working on right now? Of course, there's the Banu restaurant. I'm actually working on a podcast about Syria. I'm not, I'm not working on Iran in my actual job. I'm working on a podcast about, I'm not sure if people remember this, but it was called The Gay Girl in Damascus. It was a hoax that an American man pretending to be a Syrian lesbian writing in Damascus during the Syrian revolution. So it's a podcast about that, and it'll probably be coming out next year sometime. So I'm doing research and up on that right now. And the restaurant is still there, you know, downtown Toronto on Queen Street West. And of course, you're very active on Instagram, have great information there. (laughs) And and we'll we'll link to your Instagram uh, on this show notes. But can you spell out uh, how people can find you on Instagram? Oh, it's just at smoyedin. Which is M-O-H-Y-E-D-D-I-N. But again, we'll link to all of that. And yeah, thank you so much for talking. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. We didn't even talk on, you know, know. why it's Persian and not Farsi. Oh, yeah. Let's 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 talk about that. Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Why is it Persian, not Farsi? We went through it should be Iran, or you have an Iranian restaurant. Why is Persian language different than that? Please tell everyone so we can end this debate once and for all. It's very simple. Very, very simple. You and I are speaking English right now, right? So yes. when we're speaking English, the language is called Persian. It's not Farsi. Is it because you hate Iranians? Is that why you're saying this? No, it's because I love Persian and I love Iranians. And I don't want us to look foolish and use a term that is not actually correct. It's like saying Espanol instead of Spanish. It's like saying Deutsch instead of German. John, it is very simple. It is very simple. And there's just no other. But I don't know why, no matter what, people will yell about this. Please, Iranian, I'm just going to do a quick PSA. For the love of anything that you actually hold holy, stop when you're speaking English telling people the language is Farsi. It's Persian. There is not a single university in any world, any part of the world, that uses the term Farsi to teach Persian. There we go. I think that'll end the debate. No one else is ever going to yell at me about it ever again. I will die on this hill. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Again, everyone, follow Samida on Instagram and see her updates. It's always informative, always wonderful. And and watch her How to Cut an Anar video. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> I could have talked to you for hours. Thank you. I know. Same. All right. And that wraps up our interview with Samida. Hopefully our first conversation of many. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about Samida and learn more about Chayan Conversation and our work. We have Persian language courses, lessons about Iranian culture, and much, much more on our website at chayanconversation.com with Chai spelled C-H-A-I. In addition, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Chayan Conversation to get daily Persian language inspiration. And that's it for this week. Until next time, Hafez from Layla. 